Most doctors just don't understand what they are dealing with. Dr. Michael Sprintz joins us to share his journey from addiction to med school to opening the Sprintz Center for Pain and Recovery. He is triple board certified in pain medicine, addiction medicine, and anesthesiology and talks about the gray area between treating chronic pain and or addiction. He is a distinguished fellow with the American Society of Addiction Medicine, which is a big deal for his contributions in the field of addiction medicine. Enjoy. Welcome to the Illuminate Recovery Podcast. We shed light on mental health issues, mental illness, and addiction recovery. Ways to cope, manage, and inspire. Beyond the self-care we will discuss, you may need the help of a licensed professional. My name is Kurt Neider. I'm a husband, a father, entrepreneur, a handyman, and a student of life. I avoid conflict, I deflect with humor, and I'm fascinated by the human experience. And I'm Shelly Mangum. I am a clinical mental health counselor, and my favorite role of all times is grandma. I am a seeker of truth, and I feel like life should be approached with tremendous curiosity. I ask the dumb questions. I fill in the gaps. The Illuminate Recovery Podcast is brought to you by Illuminate Billing Advocates. Make billing and collection simple with leader in substance abuse and mental health billing services. Verification and analysis of benefits, pre-authorizations, utilization management, accurate claim submission and management, denial and appeal management, and industry-leading reporting. Improve your practice's cash flow and your ability to help your clients with Illuminate Billing Advocates. Today, Kurt and I um, get to talk with Dr. Michael Sprintz, and Michael is an expert in chronic pain and addiction. Um, He is a nationally recognized subject matter expert at the intersection of chronic pain and addiction, as well as digital health technologies relating to um, identification, prediction, and prevention of substance abuse disorders. Um, He's a skilled public speaker, educator, entrepreneur, and consultant to industry and government entities. With um, long-term personal and professional experience, he is passionately committed to helping people suffering from substance abuse, addiction, and chronic pain. Um, Dr. Michael, it's so awesome to have you on today. Oh, thank you very much, Shelley. It's really wonderful to be here. Um, It's kind of, you know... A lot of our guests have their own personal stories, which is, you know, exciting and and makes, you know, makes what we talk about even more meaningful when you have your own personal experience. But you come to this from a medical perspective and you have that background of, you know, medicine and pain management, which has been a problem. It's been a problem trying to manage pain. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and all of the different aspects, you know, that it plays a role in our lives. And so i um, super excited to kind of get to know you a little bit better and, and um, learn from you. Yeah, um, it's really wonderful. I actually, I, I'm one of the few people who come from both a personal background of being in recovery. Um, I, I was an IV opiate addict, and uh, as of October 15th of this year, I'll have 21 years in sobriety which I'm really incredibly grateful for, and as well as understanding <clears throat> chronic pain from both a, a professional, I'm boarded in, in pain medicine, I'm boarded in addiction medicine, as well as in anesthesia. And so uh, this has been something for me that um, I, I figured out sort of much earlier that most doctors just don't understand 
what they're dealing with. And, and that's really sort of part of the path of how I ended up here. Uh, yeah, and, and it would be, it's fascinating because, you know, doctors, doctors get trained in a lot of different areas, right? And there's a lot of specialties. But, you know, up until recently, there wasn't a lot of understanding about pain management and the problems that we have in trying to address that. So I love that we're able to educate on that and that, you know, that, that you've got some insight and have gained some knowledge around that's going to be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the unfortunate things, I think, is that in addition to, you know, pain management is a relatively um, newer specialty um, versus something like primary care or, or but um, the thing to, to, there are those who claim that they are pain management, but what they really are, are just selling pain meds or, or just prescribing pain meds versus a pain medicine specialist or a pain management specialist who is someone who is fellowship trained. Um, there's an enormous number of ways that we can manage pain that go well beyond just medications. Where medications are a part of the solution for appropriate patients. Um, but there's interventions, the, you know, behavioral health and, and mental health is a huge component, in my opinion, to wellness and chronic pain. Well, and, and I imagine um, that, that chronic pain is often something we experience because of the substance abuse and something we experience, you know, people experience because of the mental health besides the other pieces that bring in chronic pain. Sometimes it's part of their disease. Is that true? It can be. Um, the, the way that I look at pain is, so if you think about pain in a way, the pain is an experience. It's not necessarily one thing. It's not just a physical thing that injures us. It's, uh, you know, pain is both physical, but it, it can also be emotional and psychological. It can be energetic and spiritual at that matter. Um, you know, anyone who suffered heartbreak can understand that kind of pain. And that, that influences how we experience pain. So you have some, you know, oftentimes we talk about resilience in, in mental health and there are those who have great resilience and those who may not have as good resilience. And that impacts how people perceive their pain and how they experience it and how much the physical parts of the pain really um, overwhelm them or not uh, in terms of that. So when it comes to substance abuse, now you can develop chronic pain as a result of substance abuse because we did stupid stuff while we were, while we were using and we got injured and therefore you, you have problems there. Um, but then there are also times where, um, uh, you know, I, I had doing what I realized is that, you know, most pain doctors don't understand addiction and most addiction doctors are not comfortable yet understanding and treating chronic pain. And yet the overlap is astounding. So when you go back and you look at the things that we know, we know that there's a hereditary component to substance use disorders to developing addiction. But you can also get it with trauma, with early childhood traumas. So physical abuse, sexual abuse, um, emotional abuse. Um, and what we also know is that occurs in chronic pain as well. So now you're looking at a patient population of someone who's experiencing a whole bunch of trauma when they're younger. They have a higher probability of developing both chronic pain and or a substance use problem. And really at the base of all of it, is that the underlying driving emotion behind both chronic pain and addiction is fear. 
And I think a lot of people don't understand or recognize that it's um, both are both are overwhelming experiences for people suffering from them. Mm. So, you know, bringing light to the, the disease of pain, can I call it a disease of pain? Sure. Um, bringing light to that and helping people understand how it affects their bodies is part of what you do, I imagine. Absolutely. Um, it, it's important for people to understand. I'm a big fan. I'm a very big fan of an educated patient, meaning educated about their pain, educated about what's going on with them. Because the more a patient understands about what's happening with them, the more control that they have over their own lives and the more autonomy and the better decisions they can make that are in their best interests. You know, um, it, it's, I often tell patients at the end of the day, it is always their decision on whatever we do. It's my job to come and discuss and explain what I believe is going on. What are the, uh, what are the different treatment solutions? And then what are the risks and benefits and alternatives of all of those? But at the end of the day, I'm not the one who's living with it. And so, uh, you know, I do my best to explain it in a way that they can make a more informed decision about how they want to take care of themselves. Mm, super valuable. Maybe let's talk a little bit about how you ended up in this line of work um, and, and kind of your story of where you come from that makes you so passionate um, and, and so focused in on really making a difference for people in that space of chronic pain and addiction and mental health? Sure. Um, well, first of all, um, I never thought that I ever would do chronic pain, nor did I ever think I would do addiction medicine, and nor did I want to do either one of them, and yet it's exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, so I, uh, <clears throat> I've, I've known since I was probably about nine years old that I was going to be a doctor, and I don't really have a good explanation for that other than I knew. Um, I was the first doctor in my family, um, but it was just something I just knew. Uh, I love practicing anesthesia and um, make a very long story short, I was um, uh, doing anesthesia. I went to medical school uh, in Chicago. I grew up in Chicago um, and then moved out to Baltimore to do my anesthesia residency at Johns Hopkins. And that's where I crashed in my addiction and I left and I went to treatment and um, I spent four months at a very nice treatment center and I was completely full of shit. And I uh, uh, drank the day I got home, had a needle in my arm in a week and then went back to treatment again and ultimately uh, was told I was a little too sick for, for, the, for the nicer treatment centers and I went to a county funded treatment facility for about a year where I really got sober. And um, what was amazing is it, it took me about five years to get back to anesthesia. Um, and I'm one of the rare people who was able to, who was an IV opiate addicted anesthesia provider who crashed in residency and relapsed right away. But yet I've been able to go back successfully. That's not normally the case. And a lot of times they don't necessarily really recommend anyone um, go back uh, to anesthesia. Uh, and so I, I was out of medicine for about five years. I left medicine and um, no one would take me. No one would take me. So I, I had worked at Bed Bath & Beyond for a year and a half. So I know thread counts, duvet covers, small electrics. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a renaissance man now at this point. And um, uh, ultimately, since I couldn't go back, I went, uh, I moved to Ohio to do um, 
uh, research in biomedical nanotechnology back in the early 2000s. And uh, that was very interesting. And it actually ended me up in Italy for a year where I lived. And then I moved back um, in 2005 to, uh, to Tampa, where I was able to finish my anesthesia residency. And then I practiced for a couple of years doing anesthesia. And I got boarded in addiction medicine. Um, it was, we, at that time, they had very few addiction medicine fellowships. And, but I was doing all my continuing education and I would choose addiction stuff because I'm like, oh, I get this. You know, I understand this. It was, it, it just was easy for me, um, obviously. And uh, so I, I went and I took the boards and I got board certified. And uh, then I got this crazy idea to do a pain fellowship. And I had no interest in it at all. But I'd learned enough in my life and in recovery that I needed to trust that feeling. So I went, um, I moved to, um, to Houston. I was practicing in New Orleans at the time, uh, anesthesia. And I ended up getting a position uh, in a pain fellowship at MD Anderson in, in Houston, which is where I still am now in Houston, not at MD Anderson. But uh, it was there that I was, I still didn't understand why. And I was in the middle of my fellowship and I was miserable and I was unhappy and I couldn't, I just couldn't get it. And I couldn't understand why the universe wanted me here. And that's really about, uh, uh, about a month later, we had this big discussion that, um, about a patient who had th was on three different opioids, three long acting opioids. And this one worked for that pain and that one worked for that pain, but this one didn't work for that one. It was all bullshit. And, and, Everyone was like, I don't understand what's going on. I'm not, I'm not sure. And I was back as a fellow again. And I looked around. I'm like, oh, come on, guys. He's playing you. I'm like, this is what he's going to say next. This is what he's going to say next. This is what he's going to say next. This is what we need to do. And um, I, I was um, politely told at the time to in the next day that um, uh, it was a that pain is, is, we have an ethical responsibility to treat the pain, period. Which essentially was, yeah, exactly. Shut the hell up, Mike. <laughs> and now, and, and for, in, in their defense, you know, it was 2011 at the time. So people really didn't know. And we were at a cancer center. And so that's the sort of the last bastion of where addiction is going to continue to hide is in cancer. So I can understand where the perspective was from, but what the important point of that really was that that was the moment for me, that I had been 12 years in sobriety trying to figure out what my calling was, <clears throat> excuse me. And it was in that moment where I was like, oh my God, they don't get it. Like they really don't get it. And what I had found since then was that the pain community in general didn't understand it, not necessarily because nobody cared, but because no one had ever been trained in it. And <clears throat> there had been some, you know, obviously, as we know, with the opioid lawsuits going on right now, there was a lot of misinformation about the uh, addictive potential of, of opioids in the, in the mid 90s. And so there were a lot of people who had trained thinking, well, well, if you've got pain, it's OK and you're never going to get addicted which just belies common sense. But at the time, everyone seemed to, to believe that. So that was where I realized this is what I was supposed to do. And so I opened up a clinical practice 
in 2013 um, in, in Houston that was one of the first private practices that specialized both in chronic pain and substance use disorders. Um, they had a couple university-based setting places, but I don't, I didn't recall anyone in private practice doing it. So I was the crazy guy. <laughs> so what does that mean? Because that does it mean are you are you you're essentially a pain clinic and you help protect people from the addiction, or are you also providing addiction treatment? Well, we actually do all of it from start to finish. So we are a fully comprehensive interventional pain management um, practice that we're, we're technically multi-specialty because we are pain management as well as addiction medicine as well. Um, I now have, <clears throat> there are four doctors, two of them are partners. Um, they are also are also boarded in um, addiction medicine and pain management. Uh, we've had in-house behavioral health. Um, I wanted it right from the beginning and we did for, for the most part, we ha I've had behavioral health involved in um, my practice really almost from the start. And so right now, um, our director of behavioral health, Peter Mott, is, is really fantastic. And because <clears throat> I knew that regardless of whether or not, so if you have chronic pain, some patients may have a substance use disorder, they may not. Um, and there are people who may present with chronic pain who really don't, but they only have a substance use disorder. And then there are those who have true, genuine chronic pain issues and a substance use disorder. And so what we do is we actually, we evaluate all of our patients. So a lot of times when I'll give a talk, um, I'll, you know, I'll introduce myself and, you know, I'm boarded in pain, boarded in addiction, you know, I've been sober a long time and I prescribe opioids and everyone kind of pauses and they're like, what? You know, there's that silence. And, and then I follow it, you know, to appropriate patients for appropriate reasons. And when it's not appropriate, I don't. And that's the key difference with us, with, with our practice at the Sprint Center. Um, we're up in the Woodlands, Texas, if anyone's interested. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, for us, that was the big difference, was that we understood how to manage pain in a way in which you, you evaluate everyone. Like, are, are they appropriate for, you know, is, and opioids are just one piece of a whole, you know, slew of therapies that we can offer. But if we identify someone who's at risk or who may have a problem, we can actually manage them as well. We are certified as an intensive outpatient treatment facility as well. And um, even though, I, I mean, I got sober in, in the 12-step program and the abstinence-based model, but we also do uh, MAT and buprenorphine as well. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm happy about talking about that as well uh, in the in the future too, because I think I don't think there should be a, a a black and white perspective on that. Right, we've talked about you know on the <clears throat> podcast we've talked before on that idea of you know if you're not drug free if you're not medication free then you're not really sober and that doesn't make any sense because you can't treat anybody else in any other medical field like that but we want to do it in in substance abuse. Right. It's like telling a diabetic that I'm not, I'm not going to give you insulin until you get your sugars under control. <laughs> and, you know, where, versus the way that I looked at it is the goal with all, the goal with all um, medical conditions is if we can get it to a point where the individual doesn't need 
um, medication, that's wonderful. The goal is, is abstinence of medications, dependent, regardless of what illness that you have, if we can get you to a point where you don't need them, that's fabulous. But if someone comes to me and they've got diabetes, then I say, okay, well, the goal is to improve your lifestyle, improve your, your diet so that we can, you know, help you uh, to manage your, your blood sugars. And that with the goal being at some point that you may not need insulin or any of the other medicines. Some people get there, some people don't. And I look at that with, uh, with um, addiction recovery as well, because, you know, if someone has, most of us, I'm sorry, I was very fortunate in that I was able to take time out and go to treatment. I, I wasn't married, I didn't have kids, um, and I had a disability policy. I was incredibly fortunate and privileged to be able to actually do that. Um, very few people have that kind of, of, of privilege, and I want to honor that because there's a lot of people who, if they, if they take 30 days off to go to treatment, they lose their job and their house. And so what do you do with that? And, and when I looked at the, we have a, you know, it's a public health crisis. And so how do you manage things in a public, from a public health perspective? It's not just an, a single individual. And so for some people, hey, if we can prescribe a medication, you know, like buprenorphine or something that helps you stay so that you can keep your job and then you can go to IOP at night and you can learn the tools to help deal with emotional issues and later on, then the goal is always so that we can get you to a point that you won't necessarily need that. But if people have never had any training or, or education on how to deal with their emotions in a healthy way, what do we do? We, I went back, I went right back to what I know. And, and so that's sort of my perspective on things that the goal is always to help people get there. And I know in recovery for me in the beginning, it was like, well, I just, I just got to get off the, you know, the drugs, you know, I just got to get off the alcohol. And then you stare, you stick around in the rooms for a while and it's like, Oh, wait a minute. It's not about the drugs. It's not, you know, it's, it's about emotional sobriety. It's about how, how do I live in it, it, with peace in a way that when I can handle whatever goes on in life in a way that I'm not hurting myself or other people. And that's really where we like to focus on. And again, it's, it's the same with chronic pain, except chronic pain had, doesn't have as much support. No. It's, um, it's fascinating, and I love that you spend your time, you know, really perfecting that intersection that, like you talk about, of chronic pain and addiction and mental health. You also mentioned that digital health technology is something that has um, really enhanced the ability to do what you do. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. Um, well, I had... Uh... What, when, in my fellowship, so I, I, am, I, I don't do anything half-assed, and so at the time I was in the middle of my fellowship, um, I, uh, I actually also started a, uh, a software company at the same time as I started my medical practice, actually right at the end of my fellowship. And because I was frustrated with um, the, I was frustrated with the reports that we would get on prescription drug usage. And, and a lot of providers, every state has a database that tracks controlled substances that can give providers some insight into someone who may have a problem. The problem is, is that they were so cumbersome and hard to interpret 
that the providers aren't using them. Even it's, it was so bad they had to pass laws in all 50 states mandating that people, that people check these databases. It was insane. So I looked around to see if there was something better out there, and there wasn't. So we developed it. Um, and it was just a visual graphic. Um, uh, it, it was a tool that took that data and presented it in a simple, easy-to-see visual graphic format. Um, you know, unfortunately, that, that product did not uh, sell as well, and we've evolved into automation of, of medical necessity documentation. But it goes back to that core point of here's the problem that we have in healthcare right now is that, first of all, we know that chronic pain is complex. We know that a substance use, identifying a substance use disorder in a patient is really challenging, especially for the vast majority of providers who have no training in addiction medicine. And so now, as reimbursement decreases, the number of patients everyone has to see increases, which means the amount of time we can spend with a patient decreases and shrinks. So we have less time to spend with a patient. And I hate to say it, that's not going away. And so the way that I look at technology is that technology can give us the opportunity to create more quality time with our patients rather than, you know, we'll, if you have 10.7 minutes to see a patient, see them, treat them, figure out what's going on, diagnose them, write your scripts, you know, call in the referral, do all those things. But if we could do it so that you have technology in which a lot of the preemptive work is already done, where the provider walks in and they spend a one minute verifying the data is accurate, and they spend the rest of the time sitting there being present with their patient and and helping them that for me is the most ideal thing that we can do um the people the biggest complaint i hear is that my provider doesn't listen he doesn't hear me and the number of times i've had patients say you know you've spent more time with me than anyone i've ever any provider i've ever had and i may or may not have it may not have even been a super long time but the consistency of what I hear from, from patients and what I've, I've seen myself you know, on the other side um, with my family members is that we don't have time. And it's not that providers don't want to. It's just it's the nature of what they've been, the box they've been squeezed into. So technology can offer us the ability to take a lot of the busy work and <clears throat> clinical decision stuff or you know, a lot of gathering and aggregating really complex data and delivering it in a smart way that's easy to understand that gives the provider more time back within that 10 minutes. So that's how I view it. That's pretty powerful too, because I, I agree, you know, you go into the doctor and the doctor has to quickly identify what your problem is and then decide what they're gonna send you home with, which in many cases, it's a medication or two or three um, to solve a symptom without really knowing what's going on or, or digging deeper into, well, what else, what other options are there? So um, that's super powerful. And, and like we know, relationships are everything, right? Relationships heal. Medications, those are, yeah. you know, to, to treat problems, but, but doesn't heal a relationship. Yes, and if you don't, it, I'm so glad you brought that up, Shelley. That's one of the, the key things that, that I know is that with, if you're not able to be present with a patient, then you don't have a relationship because you don't have trust. 
And if you don't have trust, then you don't have hope. And that is what is absolutely necessary for people to get better. And a lot of times I'll have patients ask me, well, hey, doc, you know, what do you think the probability of this procedure is going to help? And it doesn't matter what the procedure is. I tell my patients the same thing. I'm like, look, the most, the number one thing that I have found that gives the greatest chance of a good outcome is the desire to get better. And, and it's, it's connecting with our patient. So that's on the patient side. On the provider side, it's developing rapport and trust. And if we don't, if I walk in and I talk to you for three minutes and I never look at you and I'm just typing into my computer, I'm blah, 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 this is what we're going to do and I don't give you any time to ask any questions and I walk out of the room, you have no idea what I just said. And there's, where's there's trust? There is not. So I think that when you do have trust and you, then you can have hope and then you start to go, oh, okay, yeah, I do believe this will work. And I mean, when you go now, you look at quantum mechanics and quantum mechanics the concept of that talks about the idea that the observer influences the outcome. And so what does that mean on, on, a, on a macro scale, on a real world scale, is that what we believe and what we observe influences the outcome. So if my glass is always empty, the probability of me having a good outcome is not nearly as good as, as me seeing my glasses full. And that's where hope comes in. Well, it's an interesting connection. Well, not interesting because it's it's a true. I mean, it's a solid connection. But but how you said it clicked with me is, without trust, you can't have hope. Um, and those are developmentally developmentally connected. But when you said it that way, I was like, oh yeah. If you can't trust anyone, if you have trust in nothing, then you are hopeless. And isn't that isn't that exactly what what so many people are struggling with? Absolutely. And, and there's, especially when we're talking about substance use disorders too, where, I mean, you don't trust, there's obviously there's some paranoia that goes along with that at times. But I remember there was a point in time where I couldn't trust me. I couldn't trust my own thoughts. I actually had to, at one point I wrote down in early in recovery, I wrote down on a little post-it note that said, these are the people you can trust. And it was a very, very short list. Because I knew that those people had the only thing they cared about was my well-being. So when I asked them a question about what I should do about this or that, and they gave me an answer, I could trust that that was in my that they they were doing this in my best interest. Now, if you apply that to a physician and a patient, or or any healthcare provider or behavioral health provider in 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 um, that environment. If they don't have the trust in us, then what, they're not going to do what we say because they don't really believe it. It's really hard to believe that life is going to get better in the middle, in the starts of, in the beginning of addiction. I never could have imagined that I would have such an amazing and wonderful life on the inside, let alone on the outside, when I first got sober. Um, and there was a long time where I had to trust other people's word for it, you know, and if I didn't have that trust, I was screwed. Hmm. Interesting. And I love what we're talking about. Cause it's so true. Um, 
those relationships, and we talked about this a little bit pre, pre-show, is relationships are probably one of the most difficult things that we do in life, right? And to be able to maintain a really healthy, um, consistent type of, of relationship with someone else, I think first you've got to be able to do it with yourself. And then it yep. takes that maturity, right? It takes it takes both of you, I think you said this too, two people that are 100% in and are willing to do whatever it takes to have this healthy relationship. Um, and I think it's interesting because we typically model what we've been seeing, what we've seen, right? What, what our parents modeled for us, what we've seen modeled. And if we only go off of that, we might be in trouble. Oh, I'd be divorced <laughs> <laughs> and miserable. But um, yes, I, I completely agree. And I, I've come to the conclusion that healthy relationships, it doesn't matter whether it's a romantic relationship or a friendship or a business relationship or businesses or nations or whatever, a healthy relationship all has the same fundamental principles. There, you know, there is trust, there's communication, there's honesty. Uh, in my world, there's laughter. Um, you know, there's a mutual respect. Uh, it's uh, a, a win-win mentality as opposed to a win-lose mentality. So whatever we engage in, whether I'm engaging in a business relationship or whether I am having a, a discussion with my wife about stuff, it's how do we both win? Like, I'm a big fan. There's like, there's enough. There is enough love. There is enough money. There's enough everything in the world. So how do we create a solution in which everyone can win? And I think that that's, a, that's something that is hard to learn and it's taken a long time. I mean, I've had plenty of therapy and I strongly recommend people in recovery um, or even not in recovery um, that, uh, you know, therapy was a wonderful thing in which there was someone else who was a professional who could help me look at the blind spots that were preventing me from getting that which I wanted most. Mm. And that was really important. I like that. I think, I, th- I think about the Jahari window off, often, right? Is that, that four square window of things people know about me and I don't know, things you know I know about me and people know about me, things that I know about me and nobody else does, and then the things that people know about me and I'm blind to, right? And so we need the, all of those connections to try and improve. And, and relationships, I think, is an ongoing. We never master the, the, the skill of relationships. I think it's something we always have to work on because we're so different. You know, every human being is so different. We all live in a different reality. <laughs> I mean, when I, I I used to I used to think about this, you know, the old joke about man, they're they, they're front, they're in a working in a different reality. But the fact is that it seems we all are. I'm I am influenced by my childhood upbringing, by my gender, by my privilege, by my traumas, um, by my culture, by the lenses, by the decade in which I was born. All of these things have influenced how I interpret an event that occurs in my life, and that and and that my belief system, which you know forms really very early in life, um, is you know how do I move through the world? How do I get love and safety? And it's you know for most people, including myself, it was pretty dysfunctional. And so unlearning belief systems that are not helping me anymore as an adult. Um, 
takes time and and self compassion and uh, and unfortunately the world we live in is pretty um, uh, not as compassionate as as I think most of us would like so we have to give it to ourselves. Hmm. It's so true and and I think I think there's a move towards being kinder to be you know be kinder to other people but there also seems to be an awful lot of anger out there and hurt and frustration and all of that. So I could not agree more. I think it's fantastic. Um, one question I'd like to ask you and, and, and you may or may not have a good answer, but technology and, and, um, you know, what we're being able to do with gene, you know, checking genes and, um, and, and different situations in people's body has been able to help with the medication piece. Do you have a lot of much insight on that? Yeah, I mean, there, I mean, I think that. Are you talking about something like pharmacogenomic testing? Yes. Or, you know, that is it's something that really kind of. So for the people out there, pharmacogenomic testing is really just testing whether someone rapidly metabolizes a medication or not. Um, or you know, are you a rapid metabolizer, meaning our body chews it up really quickly, um, or are we a slow metabolizer, which means you know it sits in our body longer, which means you have a higher risk of toxicity. Um, I mean, I think that that is one small piece of everything. I mean, I, I always used to joke, you know, with and in anesthesia, the joke is the liver doesn't lie, right? I know who parties and who doesn't, right? Because, uh, you know, even even now, 20 years in sobriety, my liver will still metabolize the hell out of stuff. Um, and whether or not um, I've not had any pharmacogenomic testing done on myself, but I know that I rapidly metabolize a lot of medicines. It's, it's, and that was how it was when I used. But I don't know if that, I think we have to be careful that we don't utilize that as an excuse for using more or as an excuse for addiction. Because whether I'm a rapid metabolizer or not has little to, it doesn't have much to do with the fact that I, I have a substance use disorder or I don't. And the solution doesn't matter whether I'm a rapid or slow metabolizer. You know, it's important in terms of appropriate dosing of medications, but in terms of, and I guess maybe I, I didn't ask the question I guess I didn't ask you really to clarify that question about specifically what you wanted to know. You know, and I'm thinking about that, that piece there, um, as well as, you know, I hear things about, you know, you get tested for gene muta mutations that, you know, say your body is going to utilize this in a different way or you need it in a different form, or maybe because of your makeup, this antidepressant is going to work a whole lot better than this one, you know, kind of all of those areas. I think that part, so that focuses what you're describing now is really a broader concept of precision medicine, where it becomes much more personalized therapies, which I do believe that we'll be moving towards that. And the positive part and the benefit of, of personalized therapy is that, you know, especially for a lot of the behavioral health disorders for, you know, bipolar, for instance, it's a trial and error deal with the medication. So how long are you going through this? Well, I'll try lithium first, then I'll try this one and I'll try that one. But you know, a year goes by 
And that really impacts people's life and their quality of life. So anything that can shorten the time between diagnosing a problem and getting to an appropriate and effective therapy, I'm all for. Yeah, I think so too. I think we have a long ways to go, but it's kind of fun to see the different kinds of technologies we have now that can help in, in fine tuning that. Because I do think that it used to described it perfectly is, you know, someone with bipolar, for instance, it could take a year or more to get them stabilized or as stable as they can be on a medication because they might have to go through four or five or six before it actually starts to have a good effect. Yeah. With minimal side effects and, yeah. and that, and that really becomes a, a challenge for everyone. So I, I agree. And, and I think that we're, we are living in, in the era where we will be able to see this technology mature and the technology in general and the, and the advancements are, are happening at an exponential rate and um, integrating those into healthcare and wellness is going to be essential because as we move towards a value-based care system, which basically means that you have to, um, the payers will pay you based off of either better outcomes at the same, you know, either better outcomes at a higher cost or a lower cost or the same cost and then, or the same outcomes at a lower cost. So the bottom line is cost savings, right? So everyone's all about cost savings and now we're tying it to outcomes. And the only way you can do that is with better technology. Hmm. You know, I'm a bigger fan of the getting better outcomes. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, of, of clinically, of people getting better. That's um, and anything that we can do to help uh, to help our patients and ourselves grow and have better lives. I'm a big fan of. Mm, I could not agree more because isn't that the goal? Is not to just treat somebody, but to treat them so that they have a better outcome, better quality of life. Absolutely. Yeah, I often tell my patients, "Hey, look, my goal is if I can get you to a point where you never ever have to come back except to come here and say hi and bring cookies. Awesome. Then I've done a good job." Um, because I don't, you know, and I know that this happens in behavioral health and I know it happens in a lot of other health, uh, specialties in which if the patient gets better, there's a fear that, oh, I'm not going to, I'm going to lose that patient. Well, yeah, that's the goal because if I'm that good at getting my patients all well, I will not be for lack of patients. Right. <laughs> and, and it's, again, it's perspective. You know? Well, and it's true because you can't be afraid you're going to lose a client. That's what I agree. You want to, right? I want to lose. I want to lose somebody. I want them to be able to stand on their own two feet and maintain a successful relationship with people around them and all of those pieces, right? To have that stability. Isn't that the goal? We don't want to keep them in treatment. We want to help them get better. So I like that. And, and it comes from an abundance thinking, right? Not scarcity, which is going to be important. Fear destroys everything. And so if you've got providers who have a fear-based mentality, their decisions, which are always based in fear, are going to hurt them and their patients yeah. over time. Whereas in abundance thinking and, and the idea that there is enough and that you can have a win-win scenario creates the opportunities for success for everyone. I'm wondering how much nutrition, how much focus do you put on nutrition in the work that you do? We do discuss it, not nearly as much as I would like. 
Mm-hmm. In all honesty, um, you know, that's something that really having a um, having someone who specializes in nutrition, having them available would be fantastic because I do know that diet has a, a strong influence on wellness. Um, and, uh, you know, what I've, I've also had to accept, <sighs> I've had to accept my limitations as well. And there's so much that I want to do but I can't necessarily do it all, but I'm in total agreement that nutrition does have a very big influence on how people feel about themselves and, and wellness in general. Oh, agreed. I mean, you can't, you can't cut the head off and, and treat the head and think that the rest of the body is going to get better, right? You got to treat all the parts of the body and nutrition yes. is one of those. Yep. And the mind. Yeah, Exactly. <laughs> They're all connected, and we want them to be. We want them to work well together. Absolutely. Um, Michael, it's been absolutely thrilling to talk to you today. I could probably ask you a bazillion more questions. Um, but I'm wondering, I know that you're doing a lot of work in Texas. Do yes. you Do you have a lot of um, facilities that are feeding clients to you and, and turning to you for assistance with um, pain, chronic pain? Um, sometimes we do. It's always interesting because... You know, being a, a pain physician to get referrals from other pain doctors is always um, that that is kind of uh, of an honor. Uh, we we get uh, I do a lot of talks uh, um, on a national level at a lot of the societies to help educate pain doctors about addiction issues and to help addiction doctors about pain issues. Um, and and really, that's that's what my my goal is is to try and educate people as much as possible and to take what I know and what I've learned and, and get it out there because most people don't have time to go through all the hell that I went through and to learn the things that, that I have, but it, it really is of definitely a value. So we do, I do have um, places that will call and, um, and either refer patients to us or every once in a while I'll talk with some people who have some questions about stuff. I'm always happy to, you know, if someone has, wants to do a curbside consult, I'm happy to talk with people about it because a lot of times it's once you get in that in between, um, <clears throat> that's when it gets tricky. Uh, I think a lot of times in the in the addiction medicine space, uh, unfortunately, you know, obviously economics played a role, and so there's a lot of uh, a lot of places. Everyone, you know, everyone has a pain program now, but very few of them have a fellowship trained pain physician that are actually running them. And, you know, in the same sense that buprenorphine is not a complete pain management program, uh, neither are antidepressants. And so it, it really, I, I would encourage people to, who are involved in pain programs to really educate themselves on the fundamentals of pain management and the fundamentals of pain in general. Um, I think that it's, it's not nearly as easy a solution as sometimes people may think it is. Yeah, agreed. It's not. Otherwise, it wouldn't be chronic, right? It's it's not simple. So, I love that you're there as a resource and that you're there. You're educating others about the complexities of it and how to think in a you know a bigger scale than what they are now and what they've been educated in. I think that's so important. It's a good great place to start. Um, there's been a lot of change in the industry already, and uh, I can tell that you're a catalyst for more. I will continue to do that um, as long as I'm able to practice and speak. <laughs> um, what, you know, there's going to be people that want to reach out to you um, to learn more. What's the best way for them to connect? Um, the best way to connect would be uh, you guys, you can reach me at um, 
drsprints.com. Uh, and you, and my email is, um, my email is Michael at drsprints, D-R-S-P-R-I-N-T-Z.com. Uh, also we have, uh, our clinical practice is the Sprint Center. Uh, and that is, you know, www.sprintcenter, one word.com. And I do public speaking and, um, presentations as well. And if, uh, if anyone needs help with anything, um, please shoot me an email, and I am more than happy to help. Hmm. Thank you, thank you, and I appreciate that. Um, I, I'm just I'm taken with with the industry, and I've been in the addiction industry for a long time, and it's always been curious to me um, how we're managing pain. And so I love to hear that there's you know some depth to that, that there's some behavioral health understanding behind that. Um, it's, it's very refreshing to see that because I don't know that, as you know, we haven't successfully managed, um, been good at managing that, that pain piece. So thank you so much for the work you do. And, um, and I'm excited. We're going to have to have you on again to talk about some more, some more topics. That would be wonderful. I really appreciate both uh, you, you, Shelly and Kurt having me on the, on the podcast today. And, and hopefully we were able to give some information out there to help folks. Yeah, I think we barely scratched the surface. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> that tends to happen. It's it's a lot to we have a lot to deal with all of us. So, um, but the wonderful thing is we all keep showing up to do it. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. Alrighty. Thank you both. Take care.